You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. If y'all would please join me in the reading for God's Word from John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he, is known, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. We've been looking through the Gospel of John this semester, looking at uh, Jesus' one-on-one personal conversations that he has with folks. And tonight he has a conversation, really it's a conflict with his family, it's his brothers. Yes, Jesus had brothers, and um, to set this up, I want to talk about a a show that I've been thinking a lot recently about on Netflix called Black Mirror. Some of y'all may have seen that, some of y'all are way into that. Um, The first episode called Nosedive is incredibly fascinating. I'll just give you the setup. The setup of this particular episode is it takes place in this futuristic society where you can rate every interaction that you have with other individuals. So so it's almost like giving personal Yelp reviews for every person that you interact with. So the way that would work is that you go to the coffee shop and your contact lens kind of can scan the face of the barista and their profile pops up into your vision and you're like, oh, that's Jake. And everyone gets rated out of five stars. And you say, oh, he has an average of 3.9. He's a 3.9 kind of person. And then if the interaction goes well, he was nice, you can rate them right there, five stars. And then if he sees you rate you five stars, he can rate you right back. Oh, you're a good customer, five stars. If they were rude, two stars, two stars. And so it's, it's, a, it's a whole society dominated by ranking, scoring, figuring out who are the best people out of five. And it's really important... The higher number that you get, the more advantages and benefits that you get within the society. You can live in certain neighborhoods. You can get into more exclusive clubs or whatever. So this particular episode focuses in on this woman named Lacey, who's a 4.2. And she's trying really desperately to get her score up. And I won't go into all the details, but long story short, she gets invited to this exclusive wedding. And the guest list is entirely 4.7s and up. And she knows if I can get to that wedding, that will get my, my score, my ranking up. So she is hell-bent and 
committed and desperate to get to this wedding. But the problem is when she starts running into conflict and issues with flights, she starts to get irritated and rude and frustrated. And so the, the, the employees and the people that are trying to help her start docking her score. And she starts going down and down and down. So she nosedives and plummets to where she's now essentially about a two-point something. And she's so low, she's not even qualified to rent a car to drive herself to this wedding. But she is so committed to getting to this wedding that she just walks. She's walking through the night holding this, you know, pulling this suitcase. And in the middle of the night as she's walking up beside her pulls this like old tow truck. It's like this beat up junky truck. And the woman, there's this old woman that's driving it, offers to give her a lift, and she scans the old woman that's driving it, and she's like a 1.4 or something, just like abysmal. Like she's been voted out of existence from the society. But Lacey's desperate. She has nothing else to do, so she gets in the truck with this woman, and you find out almost immediately this woman feels different from everyone else in the society. Everyone else in the society is phony and smiley and giving everybody the five stars, and this woman is just authentic, and she's down to earth, and she's honest, and she's happy, and she just kind of, she says it like she sees it. And they get talking, and this woman, the the driver says, you know what, I was a 4.6 once. And it's shocking that Lacey like doesn't understand. But this woman says, but you know, long story short, this system, eventually I just said, screw it. Only she doesn't say, screw it. Zoe Kate, she says, screw it. And um, she says, I, I just quit. And I just started being honest. And I just started, I started being real. And then people almost voted me out of existence. And it's so fascinating because here is the only character in the society that is happy and free. But it's, it's so thought-provoking as a social commentary because it gives you this picture of a society that everyone is governed by these values and these rules, and nobody questions it. Everybody is just kind of sleepwalking through the society, following the status quo. And here comes this truck driver that totally rocks the boat and disrupts and exposes the the established order of how society functions. And, And I bring that up because In the story that Sam read for us, Jesus is doing the same exact thing. He is disrupting and exposing and challenging the way that we think about greatness, the way that we think about success, which if you think about it, that connects to everything. That connects to how we think about our grades. That connects to how we think about our future. That connects to how we feel about a sense of self. That even connects to how we think about ministry. We want to be uh, great And uh, we want to be people that are amazing. We want to be people that other people marvel at, at how much we're doing or how smart we are or how spiritual we are or how cool we are or how attractive we are. We have a certain idea of greatness, and Jesus comes along just like that truck driver and just disrupts it all. And so I want to look at this really under three different headings tonight. I want to look at how, uh, I want to look at the seduction of greatness, the redefining of greatness, and then the redeeming of greatness. Seduction, redefining, redeeming. By the way, just a shout out. I'm getting some help tonight from my friend Brent Corbin. High fives to Brent. Thank you. So let's talk about the seduction of greatness. 
If, you, if Let's get into the story. If you find out in verse 2 that there is this big festival going on in Judea called the Feast of Booths. This is a festival like Bonnaroo. It was this annual, week-long, outdoor party event with music and dancing and feasting and pe- Thousands, if not millions of people would travel into Jerusalem to go to this particular festival. And Jesus' brothers are with him. And look at what they say to him in verse 3. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You hear what they're saying? They're saying, Jesus, if you want followers... If you want to be big and famous, if you want to get your ratings up, you can't stay here in Podunkville. You've got to go to the big city. That's where everybody is. Don't you want to be seen? Don't you want to be heard? Don't you want followers? This is your chance to network with the right people. You need to get down there to this festival. This would be like, I mean, this is like offering a company a free two-minute ad slot during the Super Bowl. It's like millions of people are going to be watching. Everyone and their mother is going to be in Jerusalem. You have got to go. You, you do not want to um, miss this opportunity. It, you, know, you, you only got one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. I mean, this opportunity comes once in a lifetime. You better, you know what I'm saying? This is their point. It sounds like uh, Jesus... Like his brothers are on Jesus' side, and they want him to succeed. But look at, look at verse 5. It gives you an insight into their motivation. Not even his brothers believed in him. Now, this is not saying that his brothers secretly wanted him to get down there and fail. This just means that these brothers represented the typical way that people think about greatness. They, they represent the worldly way of how we think about greatness, which is what? It's fame. It's recognition. It's building your resume. It's getting your name out there. It's making a name for yourself. Nobody uh, embodies this way of thinking more than Ron Swanson. Not Ron Swanson, Ron Burgundy. (laughs) Ron Swanson doesn't care about any of this. Ron Burgundy (laughs) does. And his famous line in Anchorman, you probably all know it. I'll just read it to you. I won't do it in the voice. He says, I don't know how to put this but I'm kind of a big deal. People know me. It's so hard to do this, read this without doing the voice. <laughs> People know me. I'm very important. I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> that's, that's the seduction of greatness. We all want to be a big deal. We all want to be the man or the woe man. We, we all want to be the goat we all want to be uh, the best. We, we all want to be a somebody. We want to be, we want to be the person that other people are talking about. And I think if I'm honest, in my heart of hearts, this, one of the reasons why I wanted to do ministry is because I, th- I think that I thought that's what would make me important. Being an RUF campus minister, that's what would make me a big deal. Having a room full of people, of college students that all think that I'm the greatest, right? And um, being asked to speak at conferences and weddings, like, that'll make me somebody. And I just think that's just the, that's the typical, natural way of thinking about greatness. 
we just are all programmed to how we think about greatness. That's the seduction of it. Think about your career. If anyone were to ask you, how do you define success and greatness as you think about your future? Quick, rapid fire. You would probably say something like money, ambition, importance, big house, big car, uh, prestige. That's just how we, that's just how we are hardwired to think about what does greatness and success mean in our job. What, what about in our social life? What, what, what does it mean to be great socially, successful socially? We think, well, it means that I'm friends with the right people. And you can define the right people however you define it. For some of you, it might be like, it's the popular people. It's the cool people. For some of y'all, it might be like, no, it's the Christian people. It's the sold out for Jesus people. Some of y'all may be like, it's like the cool beans crowd people. Like, wh- whatever. Whatever it is for you, it's when I'm friends with those people, then I'll know that I'm somebody. And so we position ourselves near those people so that we can feel important. People that we think are great. This is why when you see celebrities, you want to take a picture with them. Because maybe some of their greatness will kind of rub off onto you and you can show the world, hey, look, I'm like best friends with Bill Murray now. Right? Like, I mean, this is why we do it. And it's, and it's not just, so, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole social media dimension to this too. B- being successful and great on the internet, what does that mean? Numbers, likes, comments, views, retweets. You know, there's, there's a whole industry devoted to helping you increase your, your likes and, your, and, you know, in your comments. You know, like, there, you've, you've seen the little uh, ads or different uh, things on, on Instagram that offer to, they can get you more followers. You can buy a Facebook ad and it can expand your reach. That you can be great. Numbers, lots of people know you. You'll be really important. This is a worldly way of thinking about greatness, and it even trickles into how we think about ministry. How do you know your ministry? How do you know that ministry is great? How do you know that's a successful ministry? It's big. It's got a lot of people. And it's not just that it has a lot of people. It's got the right kind of people. They've got athletes. They have cheerleaders. They've got influencers, cool people. That's the seduction of greatness. It is worldly fame, celebrity, recognition. Get yourself out there. That's what makes you great. And Jesus comes along like that woman in Black Mirror and just totally redefines everything. So how does he do it? Let's look at the second thing. How does he redefine greatness? Look at, um, look at what his response is. They're like, hey, go show yourself to the world. Verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, we said this a couple of weeks ago when we looked at John 2, but any time in the Gospel of John where it talks about Jesus' time or Jesus' hour, it's always talking about the hour of his crucifixion. What Jesus is saying here is, look, I, I have a moment of glory, but it's not right now. And it's not going to be chasing other people's applause down at that festival. My moment of glory is when I die. My moment of greatness is when I lose everything. My hour, my moment of glory is when I'm condemned by the world. And you listen to that and you're like, that makes no freaking sense. Like, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And this is why he says, right, what he says uh, after that. Look at verse 7. He looks at his brothers and says, hey, the world cannot hate you. Meaning, 
you're operating by the status quo. You're operating by the rules and the standards and the values of the world, meaning uh, build your resume, get fame, get recognition. Nobody's going to hate you for that. Nobody's going to criticize you for that. In fact, everyone's going to applaud you for that and be impressed with you for that. But he keeps going. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates me because I refuse to chase my own greatness and the applause of the world. And if you follow me and you buy into my way of thinking about what greatness is, the world's going to hate you too. And for you here, uh, that means if you actually begin to put this into practice, this university, your professors, your friends, maybe even your parents will just be disappointed in you. What a waste. You've wasted your potential. So here's Jesus' bottom line, verse 8. I'm not going up to the feast. Jesus says, I don't give a rip about likes, about comments, about followers, about recognition. Don't you see? He's totally disrupting the way that we think about greatness. This is, he's the woman in Black Mirror. This is why the world has given him such a low score. This is why it's so awkward to even just bring up the name Jesus in class or with certain groups of friends because it's kind of like, he's not welcome in our society. He makes us feel uncomfortable. We have kind of voted him out of existence. In fact, we killed him. We wanted to get rid of him. He's not welcome here. You cannot get a clear collision over the different definitions of greatness. You've got the brothers. They represent the world's view of greatness, fame, recognition, promoting yourself, performing, and you've got Jesus' understanding of greatness. It's a refusal to seek your own fame, a refusal to build your reputation, a commitment to obscurity and humility, self-sacrifice, quiet, selfless love for his enemies. That's greatness. Now let's pause for a second and have, uh, and have a little story time with Matt. I always like when we have our ch- chance to do story time. Um, G.K. Chesterton was like this, the Roman Catholic version of C.S. Lewis before there was a C.S. Lewis. And he came up with this little parable, kind of short story, that uh, another author named Mark Buchanan retold. And I, I want to read that retelling real quickly. It goes like this. It's short. There was a young boy that was given a choice. He could become gigantic or he could become minuscule. He chose to become gigantic. His head brushed the clouds. He waded the Atlantic like a pond. He scooped gray whales into his hand and swished them like tadpoles in the bowl of his palm. He strode in a few bounds from one edge of the continent to the other. He kicked over a range of mountains like an anthill just because he could and he didn't feel like stepping over it. He plucked a California redwood and whittled its tip for a toothpick. When he got tired, He stretched out across Nebraska and Ohio. He flopped one arm into the Dakotas and the other into Canada, and he slept in the grass. It was magnificent. It was spellbinding. It was exhilarating for about a day. And then it was boring. And the gigantic boy in his boredom daydreamed about having made the other choice to be minuscule. His backyard would have become an Amazonian rainforest. His gerbil would hulk larger than a woolly mammoth, and he could ride the back of a butterfly or go spelunking down wormholes. A tub of ice cream would be a winter playground of magic 
proportions. Life would have been so much more interesting had he chosen smallness. Do you see how Jesus is redefining greatness for us? John the Baptist put it perfectly just a couple of chapters before in the same book. He said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. That's greatness. Jesus becomes bigger, I become smaller. I become more humble, I become more obscure. That's greatness. Here's the question. How in the world can you do that and not be, cons- not, not be kind of seduced by the world's understanding of greatness and being the man and being big and being a celebrity? Here's how you do it. You connect the dots from what Jesus did back to yourself. That you don't have to be discovered by the world because you have already been discovered by him. You don't have to boost your social ratings because the king of the universe, the only person that actually really matters, already knows you and loves you. And how do we know that? How do we know that he knows us and loves us? Here's why. Because Jesus, the gloriously enthroned king of the universe that has been in heaven from eternity past, he gave it all up and became a homeless peasant. He who was enthroned and high became low. The king gave up his seat at the table for a servant, for you. This is is what Jesus said, you will gain your life when you lose your life. And that's what he did at the cross. At the cross, Jesus became the thing that we are all so terrified of becoming. He became a loser. He became a failure. He became a nobody. He became an outcast. He went from super high to super low, and he hung there naked and ashamed on a cross, and that is his moment of glory. Don't you see that that is what makes him great? I mean, think about it. Let's say Jesus came, let's say Jesus went to a publicist or to a PR person and said, hey, I want to become famous. I want to be the number one most important person in the universe, in the history of the universe, and here's my game plan to do it. I want to be born into obscurity. I want to live in a village that 99.9% of the world has no idea even exists. Um, I want to live a life loving the people that nobody cares about. And I want to die an early death. The publicist would be like, that would never work. That's insane. You do that, nobody's even going to know. Nobody's going to notice that. Nobody's going to Instagram that. Nobody's going to uh, talk about that. You will be forgotten with human history. And here we are, 2,000 years later, on an entirely different continent, still talking about it. And literally billions of people around the globe still talking about it. That is his greatness. Don't you see how he totally upends what is actually great? It is to give it all up in love for the sake of someone else. It's not self-promotion, It is self-sacrifice. And when you believe into that, that actually begins to redefine how you see and understand greatness as well. And it has the power to change everything. Well, let's look at that. What does it change? Here's the last thing I want to look at briefly. What does redeemed greatness look like? Because I know, if you're sitting here and you're thinking this through, this is 
hard and confusing to think about how do you put this into practice? Does this mean you shouldn't dress up and go to job fairs? Because you're promoting yourself. Does this mean you shouldn't raise your hand in class and answer a question? You're drawing attention to yourself. Does this mean we should shut down RUF and I should quit? Because look, I'm in the spotlight on stage every week. Look at me. Should we shut it down? What does this look like in practice? Well, we don't have a complete answer, but just look at verse 10. It says this, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jesus ends up going to the festival after all, only he he goes in an entirely different way than how his brothers wanted him to go. They wanted him to go and make a scene and make a splash, and he goes in privately, secretly, incognito. And what this tells this gives you a picture of what redeemed greatness might look like in practice. It is not separating yourself from the world entirely, but it's actually being a part of the world, only you, you refuse to live by the standards of the status quo anymore. Jesus doesn't separate himself from the world. He lives in the world, but he doesn't live by the world's standards. So what does that look like practically? Well, I don't know, but it could look like this. Redeemed greatness might look like, I am free to post that picture on Instagram or not. I'm free to keep the Snapchat streak going or not. I'm I'm free to say something funny online or not. Because I'm not doing it with this compulsion to constantly check to see how well it did. I'm just free to interact with my internet friends. I don't know. (laughs) Redeemed greatness might look like you have a completely different trajectory for your future. You might say, honestly, the reason why I'm doing engineering or business or whatever it is that you're doing is for the money. I'm doing what I'm doing because I think it's, it's going to make me feel important and I'm going to get a lot of money from it. And redeemed greatness would look like I'm going to do what I think I want to do and what my gifts are, and they may not be the sexiest job. It may not be the most profitable, profitable job, but that's okay. Uh, redeemed greatness might look like you come into a room like this and rather than kind of being driven by I'm here so that uh, people will think that I'm great. But you come into a room like this and you're like, how can I make other people feel great? Rather than coming into a space like this and thinking, who, who can I get to like me? Who can I get to laugh at my jokes? You come in here and say, who needs a friend? Who needs encouragement? Who, who needs their jokes to be laughed at? Redeemed greatness means that, that you begin to move towards loving and serving other people in a way that might never be Instagrammable that nobody may ever even know. I mean, nobody may ever notice or recognize or even show appreciation for what you do. But that's redeemed greatness. And the question is, are you okay with being overlooked? Are you okay with, being un- with not being noticed? Do you have a spirituality that makes it okay for you to not always get the recognition and the praise that you want? Are you willing to forego the ways of the world which work and actually trust Jesus in his ways instead? That's redeemed greatness. I will follow the way of the king, which means the way up is the way down. I win by losing. I want to end with this. Final, final thought. 
Uh, I read an article in the uh, New York Times last week. I'll take some recognition for that. <laughs> and um, it was titled, You'll Never Be Famous and That's Okay. It's a great article. You should Google it. But the author um, references this book called Middle March, which was written in the 1870s by Mary Ann Evans. That's her real name. Her pen name was George Eliot. It's awful that she had to use a guy's name to get her stuff published. But Mary Ann Evans wrote this book, and it's a story of this woman with big, large, philanthropic ambitions of making a big impact in the world. She's driven, she's got gifts, she's got skills. And the story of 700 pages tracks her story where her first husband passes away, all of her dreams come to a halt, and she ends up marrying this, uh, this other guy. And the rest of her days are spent with all of her ambitions unrealized, and she just lives this normal, unglamorous life as a stay-at-home mother and a stay-at-home wife. And it feels like as you're getting to the end of the book, so I'm told, I've never read this book, it feels like it's just such a complete waste. She's wasted all of her potential. She's just settled into this boring, normal life when she could have been so great. And she's just kind of loving the people in her little community. And and I included the quote in your bulletin. This is how the end of the book describes this woman. And it's a little bit clunky. This is 1800 language. It's so beautiful. I wanted to be in front of you. And I want to read it for you. This is the ending description of this woman. It says, Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is inviting you and me to lay down our personal greatness crusade at his feet and instead to love him and to love others with unhistoric acts so that maybe one day somebody would say, things are not so ill with me as they might have been because Christians around me loved me when I was unlovable. They were friends with me when I needed a friend. They accepted me and involved me when I, when I looked different and when I was different. That is greatness. Unhistoric acts, normal life, and you'll die and rest in an unvisited tomb. Jesus says this, Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Consider that an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would disrupt and deconstruct and redefine how we think about what greatness is, how we think about what success is. We may not have known it, but we're just sleepwalking and drinking deeply of the world's values, which are antithetical to yours. And I pray that you would heal us 
redeem us, free us like that woman in the show, that we might be actually different, that our, might, our lives might actually be preoccupied with you and with the service of others rather than ourselves. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.